in your Bibles to Judges chapter 21, and this morning we will be finishing the book of Judges, and next week we will start the book of Hebrews. So if you want to start reading ahead in the book of Hebrews, that's where we will be uh, next weekend. On Wednesday nights, we go through the Bible, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, and we're in the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 2, so we would like to invite you out on Wednesday nights as well. If you look around, uh, this 9 o'clock service is really filling up, which we're very thankful for. And I know partly that may be the timing of the Bronco game today. But I also want to invite you to Saturday night, the Saturday night service. We have a Saturday night service at 6.30. It is the exact uh, same service, and there's lots and lots of room. So if you feel like, man, it's difficult to park and get my kids in children's ministry and all those kind of things, pray about coming on Saturday night. There's a family-style meal in the cafe uh, before that service, and then on Sunday morning, you know, you can, you can sleep in, those type of things. Oh, I just realized the other dynamic that's happening. It's daylight savings time, so that's why this is more full as well. I'm a little slow, but I'm working on it, so. But either way, we'd like to also invite you this Saturday night. So let's get into Judges chapter 21 uh, this morning, if you found it there in, in your Bible. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your goodness, your mercy that is new this morning. We thank you for the change of seasons. We come to you desiring to draw near to you. We thank you for your promise that as we draw near to you, you'll draw near to us. Would you bless this time in Judges? We thank you for the last several months we've been able to study this book. We pray that you would bring the application to our hearts and our minds this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We've titled the series of the book of Judges, I Rule, because that's the message of this book. We have a 400-year period where the children of Israel did what was right in their own eyes. And when we started the book of Judges, Chance and the guys put together a video for us to illustrate this. And I'd like to show that again this morning because it brings this point across of what it may look like in our day, our culture, to rule our own lives. So we're going to roll that real quick. What does it look like in our lives where I rule instead of God rules? You saw on that cell phone, it said productivity. You may not have been able to see that with how small the letters uh, were, but then the things that were on our list. What if you took your day, what if you took your week, and you put it on a task list like that? What are the things that would come up 
And would it demonstrate a life that's submitted to God, or would it demonstrate a life where we're in charge and we're ruling? Obviously, there were some things on there that you would never put on your task list. You'd never put pornography on your task list. You, 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 know, you wouldn't put those acts of sin and selfishness there, but what if it did it for us and it just reflected the week that, that we lived? What would be the, the message? And my intent this morning is really to bring us to a conclusion, to bring us to an application, because in this chapter, we're going to find that things continue to be an absolute mess. If you've been studying with us from Judges 19, 20 to 21, what has taken place is this mess began with a Levite and his concubine, where she gets raped to death, then he chooses to cut her body into 12 pieces and send it throughout the nation of Israel to the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes respond. They go to Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, and say, release these men to us that have done this wicked act. The tribe of Benjamin says no. We're going to defend this sin instead of dealing with this sin. So all the rest of Israel goes against the tribe of Benjamin, extremely bloody, thousands of lives lost, 60,000 lives lost, Now, Benjamin, the tribe, is almost wiped out. In chapter 21, the light bulb goes on for the rest of Israel, is we don't want to wipe out the tribe of Israel for the rest of the future, and so they're they're dealing with this. And then God brings us to this conclusion, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So hopefully, we can apply from going to I rule to God's rule and get a place of motivation and a real solid foundation in the truth of what it looks like for God to rule our lives. A quick review of this book is how many judges were there? 13 judges. We've studied 13 different deliverers that God has raised up as the children of Israel went through a cycle. And the cycle was this. First, there would be sin Then there would be slavery. God would turn them over to slavery, which would lead to supplication. And then finally, salvation and God raising up these deliverers. How many of those judges do you remember? How many of you guys remember Ehud? Okay, handful of you. He was the left-handed judge that stuck his dagger into Eglon, who the scripture says was a very fat man. And dirt and water came out of Eglon's stomach. Now you remember him a little bit more? Shamgar. One verse is given to us about him, how God used him with an ox goad, an unusual instrument to bring about a victory. Deborah, how many of you guys remember Deborah as we studied through? All you ladies are like, yeah, I remember Deborah. Of course, Samson, how many of you guys remember Samson? I think, come on, you aren't being honest. All right. So these judges that God raised, and each of the judges point to Christ, the ultimate deliverer that's able to deliver us out of our sins and transform our hearts and our lives. So verse 1 of chapter 21 brings us into them dealing with the tribe of Benjamin almost being wiped out. Now the men of Israel had sworn an oath at Mizpah saying, none of us shall give his daughter to Benjamin as a wife. This is understandable. All of the fathers make an oath, a vow, that they're not going to give their daughters to any of the sons of Benjamin. There's about 600 men who are left of the tribe of Benjamin. So with this vow, what they're doing is they're causing the tribe of Benjamin to not be able to move forward in the future. It's an understandable vow, but it's a foolish vow. And many times that's the way it is in scripture. 
we see vows that are made that are foolish. Saul made a vow, King Saul. He said, nobody's going to eat until we win this victory, and they were in a battle. Is that a good idea? If you're in a battle that, that you would say, we're not going to eat, uh, and, and no, not at all. And Jonathan, his son, didn't get word of this command, and so he disobeyed the vow, and Saul wanted to kill his own son, Jonathan. The rest of Israel stood up for Jonathan. Jephthah was one who had a foolish vow that we studied earlier in the book of Judges. So it's another reminder to us is be careful before you make a vow. Examine it and be, make sure that it's what God would have you to do. In verse 2, then the people came to the house of God and remained there before God till evening. They lifted up their voices and wept bitterly and said, O Lord God of Israel, why has this come to pass in Israel that today there should be one tribe missing in Israel? How did they get to this point where Benjamin was almost wiped out? Because the rest of Israel stepped over the line of justice into the arena of revenge. They took it too far, if you remember, at the end of chapter 20. Many times when we look at the mess of our lives, we go, how did we get into this mess? You know, how, how is my life in this place? Many times the answer is when we've taken something too far. Verse 4, so it was on the next morning that the people rose early and built an altar there and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. The children of Israel said, who is there among all of the tribes of Israel who didn't come up with the assembly to the Lord? For they'd made a great oath concerning anyone who had not come up to the Lord at Mizpah, saying, he shall surely be put to death. They asked the question, who didn't join them in battle against the Benjamites? And so now they're trying to find the answer to wives for the Benjamites. And you'll see how this plays out. They're not seeking the Lord, and they're not waiting upon the Lord, and they make a terrible decision. Honestly, what we're about ready to read, once again, is very difficult to read and what they do to this one city that chose to not join them in battling against the Benjamites. Verse 6, and the children of Israel grieved for Benjamin their brother and said, one tribe is cut off from Israel today. What shall we do for wives for those who remain? Seeing we have sworn by the Lord that we will not give them our daughters as wives. We, we have to find them wives. We've made this vow. Another solution here in verse 7 is to acknowledge they've made a foolish vow and do the right thing. That would be much easier. It would take humility. It would take acknowledging that they've made a mistake, but they're unwilling to do that. Verse 8, and they said, what one is there from the tribes of Israel who did not come up to Mizpah to the Lord? And in fact, no one had come from Jabesh Gilead to the assembly. So this city, Jabesh Gilead, did not come up with the rest of Israel to go against Benjamin and their, their wickedness. Verse 9, for when the people were counted, indeed, not one of the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead was there. So the congregation sent out their 12,000 men of their most valiant men and commanded them saying, go and strike the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead with the edge of the sword, including women and children. They go on a genocide. They kill women and children simply because this city did not go up and fight with them against the Benjamins. This is not God's heart. God's not condoning this. God's not commanding this. This is Israel doing what's right in their own eyes instead of doing what's right in God's eyes. In verse 11, 
And this is the thing that you shall do. You shall utterly destroy every male and every woman who has not known a man intimately. So they kill everyone except those women who had not been married, who had not known a man intimately that were virgins. And we see this group of women in verse 12. So they found among the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead 400 young virgins who had not known a man intimately. And they brought them to the camp at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan. This means all the boys were killed. They went through and they, they wiped out all the boys. This means the young girls that weren't marrying age, they were killed. The only ones that were spared were the girls that were marrying age that were virgins. Could you imagine for these young girls what this felt like? Their parents killed, their brothers killed, their grandparents, their whole entire family and then they're taken to go marry these sons of Benjamin. And this is some of the, the most difficult things in Scripture. And God's not hiding it. It's one of the unique things about the Bible is God doesn't hide the truth and he doesn't hide sin. And he's saying, look, this is what happens when you do what's right in your own eyes. When we stop and meditate upon this, this is a resounding message of God to his people throughout all time and all history saying, don't rule yourself. Don't live by this mantra of saying, I'm my own boss. There's no rules. I'm the one who decides what's right and wrong. What God intends for our lives is that we surrender, that we put him in that proper place where he's Lord, where daily we're denying ourselves saying, I know what happens when I do what's right in my own eyes. I destroy myself, I destroy others, I break God's heart. God, I want to surrender to you. Though it's been difficult, I'm glad that we've gone through the book of Judges and that we haven't skipped these last three chapters. You know how easy it would be to say, all right, we're going to end with the story of Samson and we're going to move on to the book of Hebrews. Read the last three chapters of Judges yourself. But instead, we've stopped, we've read it, we've read it, we've meditated upon it, and God is hopefully speaking to us of the absolute damage that comes when we do what's right in our own eyes. Verse 13, then the whole congregation sent word to the children of Benjamin who were at the rock of, of Rimmon. Now, if you live over in Rock Rimmon in Colorado Springs, well, we'll just keep moving on. <laughs> and they announced peace to them. So the tribe of Benjamin, those that are left, these 600 men, they're hiding out at the rock of Rimmon. So Benjamin came back at that point and they gave them the women they had saved alive of the women of Jabesh Gilead, and yet they had not found enough for them. So 400 young women to be wives, but there's still not enough women for the men. So what they do now is the plot thickens. This is act two of their solution to find wives. And the people grieved for Benjamin because the Lord had made a void in the tribes of Israel. Then the elders of the congregation said, what shall we do for wives for those who remain, since the women of Benjamin have been destroyed? And they said, there must be an inheritance for the survivors of Benjamin that a tribe may not be destroyed from Israel. The reason they're concerned with Benjamin not being wiped out it's because God gave the land of Israel to the children of Israel with the 12 tribes. One of those 12 tribes is Benjamin. 
So if Benjamin gets wiped out, they lose their inheritance in the land. They had a specific portion, a place inside of the land. In verse 18, however, we cannot give them the wives from our daughters, for the children of Israel have sworn an oath, saying, Cursed be the one who gives a wife to Benjamin. So they're doing all this with Jabesh Gilead and this next act here simply because of their foolish oath. We've got to find a way around our oath. Verse 19, then they said, in fact, there is a yearly feast of the Lord in Shiloh. Shiloh was the place where the tabernacle was, the place that they would have the feast, the feasts that are described in the law. So they would come together, the nation would come together at Shiloh to worship. So they're saying, during that yearly feast, this is what we're going to do, which is north of Bethel on the east side of the highway that goes from Bethel to Shechem and the south of Lebanon. And verse 20, therefore they instructed the children of Israel, Benjamin, saying, go lie and wait in the vineyards. Now what we're about ready to read is just crazy. It's absolute nonsense. Here we've got the men, these Men of Benjamin, they're just going to hide out in the woods. They're going to hide out in the vineyards, just close enough where they can see the feast taking place. And this is what they're instructed to do by the elders. They didn't do this on their own. This was the instruction of the elders. Verse 21, and watch, on just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife for himself from the daughters of Shiloh, then go to the land of Benjamin. Can you imagine here are these gals, and, and in Israel, even to this day, as they worship the Lord, there's, there's dancing and, and their worship to God, and as they would come together in these feasts, very orderly and beautiful dances unto the Lord. So these young ladies are, are dancing to the Lord, and the guys are in the vineyard going, oh, she's pretty. I like her. I'm going to go snatch her. Whoop. Hey, how are you? We're going to be married for the rest of our lives. We're just going crazy. This is crazy talk right here. And you thought the way that you and your husband met was a difficult beginning. (laughs) Verse 21, and watch, and just when the daughters of Shiloh come out to perform their dances, then come out from the vineyards, and every man catch a wife. I read that, verse 22, then it shall be when their fathers or their brothers come to us to complain that we will say, to them. Imagine what the dads and brothers would say. As the father of three daughters, I would do a little bit more than complain. I mean, complain is to put it lightly. Like, what's going on here? They just took my daughter and they're, they're going to be married. So here's the response when the fathers complain. Be kind to them for our sakes because we didn't take a wife for any of them in war. For it's not as though you've given the women to them at this time, making yourself guilty of your oath. Saying, guys, relax. This is the way it's got to be because you've made an oath that you wouldn't give any of your daughters to the tribe of Benjamin. It couldn't be an official wedding because of this oath. A father couldn't give his blessing and have the traditional wedding of walking his daughter down the aisle and doing the traditions that they have for their weddings. In verse 23, and the children of Benjamin did so, so they took enough wives for the number from those who danced whom they caught. They went and returned to their inheritance and they rebuilt the cities and dwelt in them. So Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, because of this is going to move forward in the future. The first king of Israel was Saul. 
And when he was anointed by Samuel to be king, he said, wait a second, I'm of the least tribe, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. And I'm the least in my family. Does it make sense now why the tribe of Benjamin is the least tribe? He wasn't exaggerating. It wasn't false humility. Benjamin had almost been wiped out because of this whole scenario. They were the least tribe and they were also the shamed tribe. And Saul says, I'm a Benjamite. And that was the first king of the children of Israel. But they move forward in the future. In verse 24, So the children of Israel departed from there at that time, every man to his tribe and family. They went out from there, every man to his inheritance. And here's the last verse. God gives one sentence, one verse to comment on all of this for us to learn by. He says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There was no leadership. There was no accountability. It was simply what was governing the hearts and men's of women is I'm going to do what's right in my own eyes. If I could suggest to you this week, read the book of Ruth, because the book of Ruth is written during the time of the judges, and God is raising up a deliverer, Jesus Christ, through the line of Ruth, a Moabitess. So God brings the plan of redemption with this black backdrop of the book of Judges. The reason that I chose to teach through the book of Judges several months ago, I think we've been in Judges for about six months, is because I saw a real parallel from our culture and our society and the book of Judges. And as you go through the Old Testament, you find arguments that people would have for why they don't need Jesus Christ. Like some people might say, well, just give me some rules, give me some expectation, give me some laws, and I'll do that perfectly then I wouldn't need you to give your son. God knew that in advance. He knew the hearts of men, so he gives the law, doesn't he? And we find very quickly that we fall short of God's standard and we need a savior. Another argument that people would have is, I don't need laws, I don't need rules. I've got it in and of myself to do the right thing. I don't have a sinful nature. Just give me the freedom, give me the opportunity to do what's right in my own eyes. I don't need a king, I don't need a deliverer, I don't need a savior. And so God says, I'm going to let that play out for 400 years. The book of Judges is a 400-year period, and God shows us very dramatically, very pointedly, that it's an absolute mess. And I want to comment just on a couple of things that we see in our culture and our society that show an I rule type of mentality. And then we're going to go to Romans 12, And really be challenged by God to be someone who is ruled by God. God's rule in our lives. I encourage you to do this. And I don't encourage this very often. But I think it will be open up your mind to see what's taking place in our culture. Is if you have internet access, go to 60 Minutes. And last week they released an episode. I know I'm kind of nerdy, but I like watching 60 Minutes. So I normally watch it. And there's this one short segment that they do about what's taking place in the lab in terms of messing with genetics. And so, of course, for different reasons, for many, many years, there's kids that have been conceived in a lab, and there's not a messing with the genetics in that process. You know, pregnancy is not taking place in the natural form, and so it's done in the lab. And that's one thing over here where they're they're not messing with genetics. But what 60 Minutes is presenting that's already happening in the lab now 
is a scientist, a doctor, will look at the genetics of the male, the genetics of the female, and say, we know now that these traits, this is what leads to cancer. So in the conception, if we do this and we do that, we can eliminate cancer from this child that's going to be born, or Parkinson's, or ALS. And so couples are going, you know, this makes absolute sense. If I can not pass on these genetic diseases to my children, I'm going to do it. And we know now that a lot of uh, diseases are genetic. You know, my, my dad has had cancer. Uh, all his brothers, his, my uncles have had cancer. My grandpa died of cancer. You know, his brothers, from what I know, my grandpa's brothers, my great uncles, they all died of cancer. So apart from the Lord, what do you think my future is? Probably cancer, right? And so, so here you have this line of thinking, well, we'll just go in and mess with the genetics and we'll eliminate cancer from the males on the cardiac side. And this is beginning to happen. This is not like in the future. This is happening today. And this doctor has now started this business and he can't keep up with the demand. And I suggest to you that we're headed to a day in our culture where it's going to be considered irresponsible to actually conceive kids in bed. What? You just let it happen to random chance and you didn't do it in a lab? You're becoming a burden on society. You could have eliminated this and we know the costs of healthcare and this expectation that you will have your kids engineered genetically in a lab. Now there's some obvious benefits but it's so far in the research that you could actually choose the color of your kid's hair, the color of their eyes. You'd have a choice of their eyes. You could even choose the gender. You could say, you know what? We want a girl. We want a boy. And I think that's too far. I think we're stepping over a line, and we don't even understand what the fallout's going to be. We don't understand 50 years where maybe we eliminated cancer, but what did we create by messing with something that God's designed? And you can look at objectively, and when we've messed with something that God's designed, eventually there's a fallout. Eventually there's a cost to it. And it's a cultural perspective, and what we're saying is that disease and defect is bad. And what God has said is that he's not made a mistake when there's a defect. How do we know? In the book of Exodus, when God's talking to Moses, Moses stuttered really bad. And he was being called by God to go speak before Pharaoh. And he's saying, God, you've got the wrong person. Send someone else. And it's profound. God speaks as the great I am. And he says, who's made the deaf? Who's made the blind? Who's made the mute? Is it not I, says the Lord? God's saying to Moses, I engineered you, I did the genetics, and I gave you this tongue that doesn't work. What if we eliminate Down syndrome from our society and from our culture? That's the possibility of this genetic engineering and things like that. I think we've lost something very, very special. God hasn't made a mistake when someone has a Down syndrome. They bring something to culture and society that's amazing. If you know people that have Down syndrome, they have more joy than any of us have. And their lens of life is absolutely beautiful, but as we play God, as we say it's an I rule society, then we eliminate that out of our society. I think it's way too far, but it's growing like gangbusters. It's growing like gangbusters. It's a beautiful thing if you have children to know God did this. 
God gave me three daughters and one boy. I love that. God engineered their personality. God chose their hair color. God chose their their gender. And then this leads to the other area where I think as a culture, we're going to I rule, and it is this issue of gender. Culturally, what we're now deciding is if God made me a man, if God made me male, and I don't like that, then I can choose to be female. If God made me female, and I don't like that, and I, ladies, you say, I want to be a man, that I can go ahead and change that. And I understand that there can be real struggles in the area of gender, and real struggles in, in wrestling in those issues, but you've got to understand at a very core level, who are you arguing with? Who are we arguing with as a culture? We're arguing with God. God has said, God creates male and female. God made you a man. God made you a woman. And it's his distinct design to complement each other and not to compete with one another. I've just touched on two areas. This area of altering genetics, changing with genetics and conception in the lab, and also gender with the male and female. I encourage you to see where you see it throughout our culture and throughout our society, and I think you'll find all, I rule all over the place. But I want to go deeper, because it's easier to see it in culture and society, and it's harder to see it in our own lives. So would you join me in Romans 12, and we're going to look at the first two verses as we conclude this morning. I went over these verses at the men's conference, so for some of you guys, it's a review. I apologize for that but it's always good to be reminded for you ladies. You got a little bit of a sneak peek of what we covered at the men's conference. Paul writes, Romans 12, verse 1, I besiege you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. The word besiege, it means to employ urgently, to call to action. Think of someone who's done that in your life, a boss, a coach, a military officer, a parent, and ultimately the Holy Spirit is calling us to action based on the mercies of God. And please hear this. The reason for a God-ruled life and surrendering to Jesus Christ is because of the mercies of God. The first 11 chapters of Romans deal with God's mercies. That's why Paul's saying, therefore, we've just studied the mercies of God for 11 chapters now respond to God's mercy. And it's another study that I invite you to come to on on Wednesday nights to look at the grace of God for 11 chapters. God loves us while we were yet sinners. He justifies us freely by his grace. Our old man's been buried with Christ. When God loves us, it's, it's unconditional. But for the sake of this morning, think of God's mercy in your life. Think about how he brought you to Christ. Think about how he doesn't give you what you deserve. Think about the fact that you're going to heaven, that you're not going to hell, the mercies of God. And God gave that mercy and he gave that grace without any performance on our part. Just his love, his goodness, his kindness, and we received it by faith apart from works. And when the mercy of God impacts us, here's the response, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. It's a willful choice where we say, I don't want, I rule. I want God to rule. I know my flesh. If I don't choose daily to put God in his proper place in my life, it's gonna lead to destruction. You've heard it said, and it's absolutely true, the problem with the living sacrifice is it can crawl off the altar. Amen? 
And in the Old Testament, they were dead sacrifices, animals put on the altar. The question is not, were you serving God 20 years ago, but are you serving God this morning? The question is, not were you serving God two years ago, but are you serving God this morning? Daily presenting your body as a living sacrifice. It may look something like this. As we get up in the morning and you're getting ready and you're brushing your teeth or hopefully brushing your teeth. (laughs) God, I give you my mind today. I want my thoughts to glorify you. God, I give you my ears today. I want to hear and listen to things that honor you. There's certain things you can't control, conversations that you're a victim of, but there are things we can control. And Lord, I want to listen to those things that honor you. My eyes, so important, my eyes, God, I want to choose to look at things that honor you. My mouth, Lord, my mouth, so many times I use it to tear people down. I want to be a life giver, not a death dealer with my tongue. God, I give you my tongue today. I've been fascinated this week just with hands. Yep, hands. There's a father and son in our our fellowship, and the the son is in his 30s, and, you know, well, the dad, we don't need to mention his age, but he's not in his 30s. They both go to the church, and I just happened to shake both of their hands on the same day, one in the morning, one in the evening, and I was like, they've got the same hand. And a lot of times God does that. Sometimes he just takes our physical hand and he passes it on to our children. My hand's almost freakish. I just got a huge hand, if you've ever ever noticed. It's gigantic. And guess what? I've got my dad's hands. Like when you shake my hand, it's like shaking my dad's hand. And my son Wyatt, when I was born, I was like, he got the mitts. He's got the big old, the big old hands. And there's a practical application. What my dad did with his hands affected my hands. What I'm going to do with my hands is going to affect the hands of my daughters and the hands of my son. If you're a parent, look at their hands and study their hands. You go, that's my wife's hands. That's, that, that's my hand. And what am I passing on with my hands? This is practical. Paul's talking about the body. What do you do with your body? What do you do with your hands? Are there things in your hands that don't honor and glorify the Lord? Your feet They're going to take you somewhere today. Your feet took you here this morning. You made a choice with your feet and saying, God, I want my feet to take me to a place that glorifies and honors you. And church, it's never too late. It's never too late. And you might say, there's too much in my life that's been I rule. This morning, you can choose to surrender to the Lord. And tomorrow morning, we can choose to surrender to the Lord. But it needs to be daily because selfishness will take its chief place, which is your reasonable service This means your act of worship. This is your reasonable act of worship. It makes sense because God has been so gracious to us. Don't be conformed to this world. We see in Judges how the world is pressing to put us into its mold. The world is the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. Don't be pressed into the world's mold. Don't think the way the world thinks. Don't act the way the world acts. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed is metamorphosis. It's a caterpillar into a butterfly. I think God did that just to show us his glory. Because what's our attitude towards a caterpillar? If we knew, if we didn't know that it would become a butterfly, our tendency would be like, this is an ugly creature. I'm not very comfortable with it. It's doing this weird cocoon thing. Get it out of the house. But then it becomes a butterfly. And we're like, oh, a butterfly. Amazing. Caterpillar. Butterfly. Amazing. 
And how does this transformation happen in the ugly parts of our lives? It's renewing our mind. Church, it's renewing our mind. The battle's won and lost in your mind. So here's these thoughts that are taking place. We take those thoughts captive. We need our mind to be washed as we're in the Word of God. Hopefully this isn't the only time of the week that we're in God's Word. Meditating upon it, writing it down, memorizing it, sharing with others, coming on Sunday morning with an attitude of saying, I really want to meditate upon it, and our mind gets renewed, it gets washed, that you may prove what is the good and the acceptable, perfect will of God. Do you want to know what God's will is for your life? Be a living sacrifice. Don't be conformed to the world. Renew your mind. And the result is you're going to know what God wants for your life. And you're going to be able to explain it to others. Remember math class when your teacher said, I want you to prove how you've got the answer? Miserable. I was just happy I got the answer. It's like, don't you see? It's a miracle. I got the right answer. And the teacher's like, no, you got to show me how you got the right answer. And we'll be able to prove the will of God. We'll be able to say, I know that this is God's will based on who God is and what he says in his word and the circumstances he's working in and through my life. So as we close uh, this morning, I'm going to ask that we would do this. Because in just a moment, we're going to get on our knees before the Lord as a church. We're just going to take a minute and we're going to get on our knees. And this is why. is for us individually to acknowledge God I want you to rule my life. I want you to be on the throne of my life. Church, there's a heaviness here. There's a weight here. If we don't choose to respond to the Lord, we're gonna go to the direction of the book of Judges. There's no question. And so for us to take action this morning and individually say, God, I want you to be the one who's in control. But also this, is I want us to get on our knees as a church because we're a body of believers. We're connected together in Jesus Christ and acknowledge that Jesus is the head of our church and ask that Jesus would take his proper place in our church. And if you've got physical things with your knees and with your body, don't feel like you've got to get on your knees. And some of you are maybe saying, why is it important to get on my knees? Isn't it the condition of the heart? Absolutely. We're doing something with our body to represent our heart, but... It is important. Who do you get on your knees for? And so it's our hearts connecting with this truth and then responding it. And I would encourage us, do this in your life. Get on your knees on a regular basis before the Lord. Daniel got on his knees before the Lord three times a day. It was so important to him. He said, three times a day, I'm gonna stop and I'm gonna get on my knees before the Lord. So would you join me on our knees and, and then let's pray together and I'll lead us in prayer. Father, we bow before you. We give you your proper place. We see in our lives and in our culture that we've been dominated by self. We ask for grace upon the United States. Forgive us for rejecting you. Forgive us for not wanting you in our lives. Would you do a deep work of revival and transformation, bringing the knowledge of Jesus Christ? We desperately need that. And we confess inside of the house of God in our own lives that too many days, too many times, we're ruling our own lives. God, would you forgive us? And right now, we give you our eyes. Help our eyes to glorify you in what we behold. We give you our ears. We want to listen to things that are honoring to you. 
God, we give you our tongues. Lord, you know my tongue. You know there's so many times that it doesn't edify you and honor you. And God, would you tame my tongue? Would you tame our tongue? Help us to be life-giving with our words. We give you our thoughts. Help us to take every thought captive, to meditate upon you. Lord, we give you our hearts. We love you. We're thankful to be your kids. We give you our adoration, our affection. Father, you're so good to us. Jesus, you're so good to us. We give you our hands, our physical hands, God. And we pray with our hands that we would honor you. If there's things in our hands that don't, Lord, would we surrender those things to you. We turn away from those things. We give you our feet. Lord, may our feet follow you, Lord, passionately about you. And as a church family, Jesus, you are the head of our church. We love you. We look to you. We follow you. Jesus, have your proper place in this church. May this church, may this body of believers be a church that's ruled by you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.